0: Listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at Gracemosaic.org. When the Federal Trade Commission finds a case of fraud perpetuated on consumers, the agency files actions in federal court for immediate and permanent orders to stop scams and to prevent future scams when consumers see or hear an advertisement whether it's on the internet radio television or anywhere else federal law says that this ad must be truthful not misleading and it must be backed by evidence and the FTC enforces these truth and advertising laws and it applies the same standards no matter where an ad appears In the 8th century, the Lord found a case of fraud perpetuated against the poor, the orphan, the widow, the sojourner, and the nations. And through his prophet, the Lord filed a covenant lawsuit against his people with immediate and permanent orders to stop the scam and to prevent future scams by calling them to repentance. For centuries... Israel advertised itself as God's beloved people, as the, as the seed of Abraham who had been blessed in order to be a blessing. God's people advertised their community as a light to the nations, as defenders of the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner. But in the lifetime of the prophet Amos, their advertisement was not truthful It was misleading, and it was not backed up by the evidence. But the Lord always enforces a truth in advertising law when it comes to His community. And He applies the same standards no matter where God's people are in the world when it comes to how they advertise or how they talk about their community. And every local church today must honestly ask the question, are we guilty of false advertising? Are we being truthful or are we being misleading when we claim to be committed to neighbor love, mercy, and justice? Are these claims of ours backed up by the evidence? God's word comes to us today to hold us accountable to truth in advertising, as it were. But if we would be faithful then we need to consider what the prophet Amos announces to the people in our passage for today. And we're going to explore three points. We're going to look at religious presumption, religious hypocrisy, and religious indifference. So let's look at our first point, religious presumption. Now, you'll see this in verses 18 through 20. And this section begins with the exclamation of the grieving person. Whoa. If you remember from last week, Pastor Glenn talked about how this language of the funeral is used throughout this book. And here we get more of this language of grieving. Because the Lord is in grief over the state of his people. In this text, the people of God are wishing for the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord was that future time when the Lord would intervene to deal with his foes and to establish his people. But what Israel doesn't realize is that wishing for the day of the Lord is inviting their own destruction because they have become the Lord's enemies due to their unjust practices. This is religious presumption. Assuming that you're on good terms with God while you refuse to acknowledge your sin, to repent, and to take up the work of the Lord by faith. That is religious presumption. It's like Christians saying today, Come, Lord Jesus, when they hear about some evil injustice while they do nothing to address that very evil in their own context. It's like Christians today saying, Maranatha! while they provide coverage for child abusers by handling criminal cases in-house rather than going to the authorities. It's like saying, Come, Lord Jesus, when you hear of a surge in homelessness and yet remain oblivious to the poor of your place. Make no mistake. The day of the Lord will be a day of reckoning, a day of accounting. And the answer... Is not to stop saying, Come, Lord Jesus. The answer is to quit presuming you're on good terms with the Lord while you refuse to acknowledge your sin, to repent, and to take up the work of the Lord by faith. This is why scripture talks about the fear of the Lord and self examination. This is why Jesus says, Blessed is that servant who is found doing his master's will when he comes. This is why the Apostle Paul says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for your salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is why the Apostle Peter says, Make your calling and election sure. This is why the Apostle James says, Come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. You have lived in the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. This is why the Apostle John says, Abide in Christ, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. There is grave danger in religious presumption, in presuming upon the Lord's mercy while living a life that is habitually apathetic, profligate, self-absorbed, and unaccountable. A life in which you recite evangelical doctrine without taking up ethical action. But this presumption leads to hypocrisy, which brings us to our second point, religious hypocrisy. And and you'll see this in verses 21 through 27. Now, as Amos pivots to this next section, it gets more startling for Israel because he starts to methodically identify each element in their worship And then he rejects the way that they were practicing each one. Just listen to this. Look look at the text, verse 21. Put your eyes on it. The Lord says, I hate, I despise your feasts. They celebrated deliverance from slavery for themselves while they were oppressing their neighbors. Verse 22, check it out. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Now, these offerings were the enactment of their forgiveness of sin and their fellowship with the Lord. But this was performative communion without actual communion. They were eating and drinking unworthily, to use the New Testament language. They were betraying the very symbols that they performed because they were living an alternate reality from what their actions in the symbols were announcing. Look at verse 23. The Lord says, Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen. God evaluated the sound of their songs as noise, and he refused to listen to their instruments. There's a body language communicated here. The Lord is saying, I won't smell. I won't smell the offerings coming up. I won't look upon your sacrifices. I will not hear your music. And verse 24 gives us the bottom line, the explanation. God rejects their worship because these worshipers rejected justice. This is the context for that classic verse. They were inundating the Lord with rivers of religiosity when he wanted rivers of justice and righteousness. Think about what this means for us when we worship on Sundays. This translates liturgically. Think about each element of our worship and what it communicates. Call to worship. It is hypocrisy to receive God's welcome into his abundance every Sunday and then to refuse welcoming your neighbor into your abundance during the week. Think about our singing It is hypocrisy when our Sunday singing turns into Monday silence at the sound of our neighbor's outcry. The church's melody becomes a mockery when there is no equity. It is no credit to us if we love to sing gospel but take no action for our neighbors who are singing the blues. Think about confession of sin. It is hypocrisy when we confess our culturally acceptable sins like lust and anger, but refuse to repent of the more pernicious sins that make us unjust. It is hypocrisy for us to pay lip service to the radical depravity of humans and then to become indignant and defensive when friends come to us like Nathan to David and say, "'You're the man!' You're failing the vulnerable. You're withholding justice. As the Apostle Paul says, let God be true and every man a liar when it comes to the confession of our sins. Think about when we confess our faith. It is hypocrisy to recite the Apostle's Creed while you ignore your neighbor's need. Reciting the Apostles' Creed without embracing the Apostles' ethics will only condemn you. If you recite the Nicene Creed, which exalts Jesus on the written page, but you reject Jesus when he comes to you in the form of living people, you condemn yourself. Think about our prayers. It is hypocrisy to constantly present your needs to the Father and then to resent your neighbors for their needs. It is unconscionable to constantly pour out your heart to God and to ask for His help, and then to refuse your neighbors when they pour out their hearts in need of your help. Think about preaching. It is hypocrisy to listen to a sermon while you refuse to listen to the voices of the poor. If you are a consumer of the word of grace, but you refuse to live the life of grace, it is literally a disgrace. If you want your pastors to just preach the gospel, but you make no plans to become just by the power of the gospel, you're living a lie. Think about the Lord's Supper. It is hypocrisy when you come to the Lord's table claiming to be hungry for Christ but you've done nothing for your hungry neighbor. To drink of the cup of salvation while you settle for your neighbor's marginalization. Do we announce the presence of Christ in the table while we content ourselves to be a church that's absent from the most underserved in our neighborhoods? Do we? On Sundays, do we remember the night that Jesus was betrayed only to go on betraying the orphans and prisoners of our city by our indifference to their struggles? Do we come to the table to imagine the sufferings of Christ that alleviated our sufferings while we lack imagination when it comes to relieving the sufferings of the homeless? Do we come to Jesus to feast while we leave our neighbors in spiritual, material, and relational famine? Think about the benediction. It is hypocrisy to receive God's word of blessing, to hear Him speak His good word over you, while you refuse to speak up for the vulnerable and defenseless as their advocate, to speak good words over them. Are you content to receive a word of blessing for yourself? while your neighbor continues to struggle under the effects of the curse? Do you realize, with that word of sending, who the Lord is sending you to? We warrant the same divine evaluation of our worship if it is not accompanied by doing justice. Think about it. If God had done you like you're prone to do your neighbor... Where would you be? But the good news is that you are where you are, on the heart of God, in the arms of Christ, under the ministry of the Spirit, because God refused to do you the way you often do your neighbor's. He had better designs for you than you had for your neighbors. He had sweeter dreams for us than we had for our neighbors. He's been more invested in us than we've been in our neighbors. And now he expects, he demands that we submit to this life of love and surrender to his gracious calling. The Lord wants us to put every part of ourselves into serving our neighbors flourishing because he put every part of himself into serving our flourishing. God has not failed to seek the flourishing of any aspect of your life. So grace demands that you must not fail to seek the flourishing of any aspect of your neighbor's life. And if you have failed, then you must flourish in repentance and prayer that you may come back to true life. Their presumption led to hypocrisy, and their hypocrisy led to indifference, which brings us to our final point, religious indifference. And you will find uh, this point in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In these verses, we have a, a detailing of how the elite were living in shameless luxury while others were oppressed. Israel lived in shameless luxury while many of their neighbors were oppressed. In their luxury and self-indulgence, they paid no attention to the condition of their neighbors. They became numb. They became blind to the condition of the people around them. And it walks through... The extent of their lavish living. The extent of their luxury. For example, you see in the text, they didn't drink wine out of glasses. It's like they drank wine out of buckets. That's how, that's how profligate they were. And the key verse comes in verse 6. Take a look at it. Essentially, he runs down through the first five verses and he says, You're living in exquisite luxury, verse 6, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. You're not grieved. Your heart is not broken for your neighbors. Your heart is not broken for those who have been crushed. Your heart is unmoved. And this is where evangelicals are largely theological and ethical failures we have no concept of solidarity a key theme that you need to get as it relates to justice is solidarity solidarity you need to see three things in the other in order to really appreciate and embody solidarity okay Here are those three things you need to see in the other. You need to see in the other royal dignity. You need to see in the other yourself and you need to see in the other Christ. You need to see in the other royal dignity. You need to see in the other yourself and you need to see Christ in the other. This is the key to solidarity. Mr. Rogers said, When your heart can cry another's sadness, then your heart is full of love. I want to ask you a question. Are you grieved over the ruin of D.C.? Are you? Are you grieved over the ruin of D.C.? Listen, if Mr. Rogers isn't enough... Then hear the old school cats. One of the ancient church fathers, Basil the Great, said this, You are guilty of injustice towards as many as you might have aided and did not. You're guilty of injustice. Many people have a difficult time believing themselves to be unjust. But if you understand justice in the tradition of the the Christian church then you're going to have a much more expansive understanding and you're going to begin to see the ways that you have been unjust. Basel says you're guilty of injustice towards as many as you might have helped and did not. Augustine says generosity is no substitute for justice withheld. (laughs) Generosity is no substitute for justice withheld. That comes from the African church father, Augustine. John Chrysostom says this If you see anyone in affliction do not be curious to inquire further His being in affliction gives him a just claim to your help Do you see what what Chrysostom is saying He's saying you don't need to do a bunch of research to try and figure out if this afflicted person is worthy of your help or if if, if they if they have fallen into the situation that they're in uh, as a result of some calamity. It, it, most people are trying to figure out if the person in need, if it's their own fault, if they brought it upon themselves. But Chrysostom says don't do a bunch of research to try and figure out if that afflicted person uh, has landed there from, from some good reason. He says, them being in affliction is enough to give them just cause to claim your help in the eyes of God. Because think about it. We are out to be a people that is (laughs) Christ-like. If Jesus was looking around the human race to try and figure out uh, uh, who he could help, who, who deserved his help who had fallen into their circumstances, not because of their own bad decisions, but because of things that were out of their control, there would have been no one getting any help from Jesus. But Jesus doesn't look for the people who have some kind of warrant for his help. He isn't looking for the people who have have some kind of entitlement to his help. He helps us out of free grace. He moves toward us in that way. And because he has moved toward us in that way, God has every right to lay upon us the demands that give our neighbors just claim to our help. It is a matter of justice. We need to understand the difference between compassion and justice. Compassion deals with the results of injustice. It deals with the fruit. But justice deals with the root now think about it like this imagine that I came up to a river and when I was standing beside the river enjoying the river I looked out and I saw someone drowning out there and I jumped into water and I swam out and I rescued them and I pulled them back out of the water and as soon as I got them up on the shore I look out over the river again And I see another person drowning. And I dive back into the water and I swim out to them. And I I get a hold of them and I swim them back to the shore. And I'm exhausted by now. But I, I pulled them out. And just when I do that, I look into the river and I see a third person. And I dive in and I try to help that person and try and bring them out of the water. That's compassion. But justice would be if I took a walk... Upstream. And I learned that there was a corporation that was making its workers do their work from a tightrope that hung over the river. They had not provided safe conditions for their workers. And the only hope that these workers had to provide for their families was this work here. But the corporation was exploiting these workers and putting them in danger. Compassion is pulling those folks out of the water. Justice is dealing with the corporation that is perpetuating the injustice that put them in the river in the first place. What I'm saying is that the church must be an institution that gets upstream in the culture to deal with injustices at their root so that they no longer perpetuate further damage to our neighbors. Listen, there is no reason why there should be more churches in D.C. than there are orphans in the system in D.C. That is a problem that we can address. We can get to the source of it. There's no reason for that. There's no reason why the homeless population should go underserved When basically there's one homeless person, there's six homeless people for every one church in D.C. We have to wake up to the realities of what's going on in our city. There's no reason why we should be oblivious to the gap in education between white kids in D.C. and black kids in D.C. If there's any people that ought to be investigating why that is the case, asking why that's the question, why that's the reality, and what is to be done about it, it ought to be the church. Because the church is to be in solidarity with its neighbors. Now, I want you to hear this word from another old school cat. Now, by this point... Maybe because of the kind of church you grew up in or the kind of Christian tradition you grew up in. You're thinking by now, I don't know, this sounds kind of liberal. I want you to listen to that great liberal, John Calvin, when he says, Can we deny before God our common bond with other men, seeing that he has created us in his image? Or can we repudiate him as our father and disavow fraternity with each other, seeing that he has willed to unite us by such a bond? Shall we say that God crowds us too much and that he imposes too heavy a burden on us when he leads us to work equity and justice? Whatever the case... Let us be on guard against flattering ourselves, seeing that we have understood that our Lord wants us to go to the trouble of helping each other, insofar as our neighbor's life ought to be as precious to us as it is to him. Jean Calvin. Y'all know what I'm saying. Hear that last part again from Calvin. Our neighbor's life ought to be as precious to us as it is to Him. We ought to look on them with the same value that God looks on them. When we see how precious they are, their royal dignity, they were created in love. They were created by love. We ought to be moved by that. That is part of the essence of the Christian ethic solidarity I want you to see that the Lord wants truth and advertising from his church and we ought to be the kind of people that longs for and prays for our claims to be backed by the evidence of love It's in this way that our claims to be the blessed people who were blessed to be a blessing will be recognized by the poor as true advertising. It's in this way that our claims to be a beloved people that spreads the same love we've received to the world will be recognized by the orphan and the widow and the foreigner, the sojourner, As true advertising. It's in this way that the broken and the oppressed and the crushed and the defrauded and the the disenfranchised and the marginalized will once again find themselves in the heart of the church. It's in this way that we will actually reclaim a profound witness to the world. We're not going to mark the world in any meaningful way. We're not going to draw our neighbors by doing the culture war thing. That is useless. That is not the kind of energy that we ought to be expending when it relates to our mission. We're not called to war with the culture. We're called to love our neighbors. And as Francis Schaeffer said, love is the final apologetic. It is our love, our self-sacrificing way, our self-giving, our advocacy, our willingness to lift our voices, our willingness to reach into our pockets to share what we have, to share of our our resources, to extend our welcome, to really live out and embody the liturgy that we rehearse every Sunday. It's in that way, by being formed in that way, that we will be most good to our neighbors. Because it's in that way they will get the clearest appreciation of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and how Jesus has done it. This is what shows off the person and work of Christ. When, from the inner resources of Christian love and Christian scripture, we draw upon our theological resources for real world good, common good. Not just good for the church, good for the world. I love how that orthodox theologian, Alexander Schmemann, put it, that God has called us together And he is doing his work in us. And he's forming us for the life of the world. It's for the life of the world. So let us pray and let us ask the Lord that he may grow us in grace. So that there may be truth in advertising in our congregations. Amen. Let's pray. Mm -hmm.